Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Julian Neiser, and I'm an attorney with the Pittsburgh office with Spillman, Thomas & Battle. I'll be your moderator this afternoon for our Pennsylvania update on COVID-19 issues. Uh, First, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, We know these are extraordinary times. The landscape is changing on an hourly basis. And we're all doing our very best to uh, deal with this situation, keep up on the updates in the law and the circumstances on the ground. Uh, And I really thank you for participating in this call. There's a lot of information circulating, and it's difficult to digest everything, especially when working remotely and managing your ongoing operations in real time. Uh, We're on the ground with our clients dealing with these issues every single day and have been since the beginning. Our team in Pennsylvania in particular is is uniquely suited to address a lot of these issues. And I'd like to take a minute to introduce some of the members of our Pennsylvania team who will be speaking today. The first is uh, Governor Tom Corbett, uh, who not only was governor of the Commonwealth, he also was the state attorney general and the United States attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Uh, He works out of our Pittsburgh office, and he's going to bring us the experience and the perspective of being Pennsylvania's chief executive and chief law enforcement officer. Next is Bob Light, who served as an FBI field agent and a federal prosecutor who has spent decades as a criminal defense attorney and civil litigator. He's going to explain how Pennsylvania is enforcing the new laws and how you might want to respond. Anne-Marie Kaiser is an attorney with the firm based out of Harrisburg primarily, who specializes in government relations. She's the firm's eyes and ears in Harrisburg and is well known for her expertise in legislative affairs and the lawmaking process. She'll explain the current realities from the state legislature and provide context on what may be coming next. Joseph Schaefer is a member of the firm and is one of the four partners who lead the firm's entire COVID-19 task force. He's an accomplished civil litigator who has been following the legal and business issues related to COVID-19 since the crisis emerged. He will talk about contractual clauses that businesses should consider, including those related to force majeure clauses. My name is Julian Neiser, and I'm vice chair of the firm's litigation department and co-chair of our construction practices group. I'll talk about other contractual clauses and insurance issues that you should consider. I'd like to go to our presentation now and just briefly address the agenda. First, we're gonna talk about a summary of executive and legislative action that's currently pending uh, and the exemption filing process and expectations, potential future action by the government, how to respond to enforcement actions and contractual and insurance recommendations. And with that said, I'd like to turn the stage over to Governor Corbett, who can describe for us the current situation and provide us his perspective. Julian, thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. I hope you uh, are able to hear all of us. Um, I can't help but think that it was 40 years or 41 years ago that another governor went through an emergency that nobody knew how to handle, and that was called Three Mile Island. Governor Thornburg had to uh, adjust, along with his administration, to an emergency 
nobody really had a strong playbook on what they were going to do. You know, when you become a governor, as I did in uh, 19, excuse me, in 2011, um, hopefully you have some experience in uh, dealing with leadership and with emergency management and somewhere along the line, uh, but not all individuals are. And the one thing that I have observed uh, throughout the course of my time is that experience is helpful, but it's not the uh, end result. What you really have to do is rely upon the team that you have surrounding you. One of the first things I did as governor before I became governor is we, we had a board top exercise about emergencies. And we had the entire cabinet there led by my director of uh, Pima, Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency. Uh, and we went through what would happen if there was a tremendous snowstorm the day that I was sworn into office. Luckily, it was only an ice storm. Uh, and it allowed us to work together to, as to how we're going to deal with emergencies. Now, if you look at uh, Title 35 of the Pennsylvania Code, Section 7301, there are a number of paragraphs in there that will allow you to take a look at the various powers. And the powers of the governor are broad um, and really are only defined by situational aspects and way, what may happen in dealings with the federal government. Uh, all governors have to deal with disasters at some point in time. They have to issue an executive order, issue a proclamation, and it will affect the regulations. Uh, the declaration is an executive order or proclamation that finds that there is a disaster and it will last for 90 days. Now, in the situation we're in right now, I believe it's going to last for 90, more than 90 days, and they will just have to renew that. Uh, the General Assembly passes a concurrent resolution uh, that can end a disaster declaration if the governor goes on beyond the time that they think is appropriate based upon the situation. When it is activated, the governor becomes basically the chief law enforcement officer in the state officially and also the commander in chief of the National Guard. Uh, some powers that are in there deal with suspension of certain regulatory rules, uh, utilizing civil resources to assist the, the Commonwealth. But the most important one to me is the one that you would use uh, the National Guard. My observation as to what is going on today is that the Department of Health is the key agency leading this with the governor. Now, do I know this 100%? No. Based upon the presence of the Secretary of Health with the governor in many of the press conferences, it's apparent that the DOH and not Pima is the one who's leading the charge on this. It's a different approach, but it's probably one that's necessary based upon the disease that we're looking at. As I said, the authority is granted to the governor by the laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, during the course of the various emergencies that I had to deal with, the floods of 2011 when hurricanes came into northeastern and central Pennsylvania, ice storms that, that we had, we had the opportunity or the necessity not only to ask businesses to help us with cleanup or with protection, but also uh, working with law enforcement to close roads down, close bridges down as they were necessary not unlike the governor's telling everybody to stay home. At the same time, the use of the Pennsylvania National Guard is important. I'm gonna make two points 
about the Guard. Number one, for those of you who are employers, if you have a member of the Pennsylvania National Guard and they receive orders to report to their armory or to report to Indian Town Cap, when they leave, they are guaranteed their job when they come back. And I want you to remember that. Very important uh, at this point in time. Uh, it, it ensures that you know they're leaving to help serve the, the Commonwealth or the national government, and we want to make sure that they have a job when they come back. Some have already been called up, and I've heard some people say, "Well, they're getting ready to to install martial law." No, they're not. The ones that have been called up, you've seen in New York, some of ours in Pennsylvania, from across the Commonwealth, have gone down to southeastern Pennsylvania to assist in. Uh, helping people go through lines uh, in order to be checked in transporting. At one point, they were transporting some of the people that got off the boats. They were taking them home uh, to their various homes and doing it in a safe manner. And whatever is necessary to help for the uh, domestic tranquility of the area that is being served. One other, two other things can happen. The, the guard could receive orders from the governor to bring whole units up. And in that regard, if you're uh, somebody like I was, we're looking at the money, that's where the state pays for them. If the governor gets a, re a uh, declaration from the president that we are a disaster area, any of our guardsmen that are called up, and there will be many that will call it, be called up at that point, um, would then be paid for by the federal government. And the federal government through FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, uh, will pay for a lot of the disaster relief that's that's going on. The other way that they get called is that they get called up by the president to become federal soldiers at that point in time. And 99% of the time, that's when they are sent to uh, um, Afghanistan or wherever they're going to be sent. Um, the, it's uh, imperative that the president have that ability but it's rarely used. I can think of some examples, but I don't think we need to go into that right now. Um, the other thing, and I'm gonna turn it over when I turn this over to Anne-Marie, is one of the tools that government has, it doesn't fall under the uh, governor's office, but it does fall under the attorney general's office. And that deals with price gouging. In fact, when I was attorney general between 2005 and 2010, uh, we, Early on, learned that Pennsylvania was one of the few states that did not have a price gouging uh, legislation. Uh, particularly in situations like this, you need legislation and we had nothing to enforce. Uh, consequently, I asked uh, Anne-Marie Kaiser, who was my secretary of legislation, and she did actually draft the legislation, and she'll talk in detail on this, that was passed by the legislature to deal with the issue of price gouging in the case of an emergency. Uh, there are a number of questions that I saw out there that we'll be happy to answer uh, down the road, but that's a brief overview. As I said, when you become governor, you've never really had to deal with emergency situations like this. Each governor treats it somewhat differently. You'll see Governor Cuomo is in one area, Governor uh, um, in, in uh, Newsom in California, he's doing other things. And I would say that Governor Wolf is conducting his uh, from the residents so that he can be talking to his people. Everyone has a different approach. The most important thing, and I think pretty soon Governor Wolf's getting ready to uh, go back on TV, is communication to keep the people informed, to keep the media informed. 
and to keep everybody calm during this very uncertain period of time. With that, I'm going to turn it over to, uh, to Amory Kaiser uh, to follow up. Thank you, Amory. Thank you, Governor. Um, before I get started on the uh, what's happening in the state legislature and the state agencies, um, Governor, I was wondering if you could address some of the options and things that could occur next. What is possible? Um, well, we, we could see, again, more counties being placed under the stay-at-home rule. Um, you could see more restriction that they could close down the turnpike if they really wanted to stop people from uh, trans uh, going back and forth across the state of Pennsylvania. You could see um, the uh, fact that uh, transportation could be stopped. Um, those are some of the issues that, that could be uh, that could happen. There's a great deal of comment about um, the president really wanting to see the country open up sooner rather than later. Uh, so some people may say, well, you know, what happens if the president says, well, we're going to open up the country? What can the governor do? Each governor is, in, is responsible for their state. And if they want to continue with restrictive measures, they have the authority under their legislation. We have it under our legislation to continue at that level. The only difference is they may or may not get any funding from the federal government after that point if the president is insisting upon moving forward with that which I find to be highly unlikely. Uh, the interplay that we see between state and federal administrations, uh, it's really between the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency and the Federal Emergency Management Agency. They talk with each other on a regular basis. Their lines are open full time. And I can imagine Pima is very busy right now. FEMA is extremely busy at this point in time. And sometimes those communications are not instant. Uh, sometimes they're going to take half a day or a day. Or more. Uh, but there is going to be constant communication between the, the state and federal government. Hey, Marie. Thank you. Um, next, we would like to talk to you about what is going on in the uh, Pennsylvania legislation. Um, as you know, um, as you know, uh, the legislature did not stop working. Um, they came in this week and encountered a situation that encountered before. Um, they had to figure out how they were going to be able to continue to conduct business with uh, some members not being able to come in or um, not believing that they shouldn't be coming in. So they've allowed them the opportunity to vote, whether it be from their offices in the Capitol offices. So they did changes to the rules in both the House and the Senate to allow voting from a remote location. Um, I must say, uh, as an observer of the legislature over the years, I was very impressed with how smooth the process was. Um, it really did not have any significant delays, uh, and they were able to do the people's business in a very efficient manner. So kudos to the legislature for moving quickly to make that adjustment. Uh, I just need to briefly go through some of the legislation that was passed this week. Uh, as you may have read in the newspaper or heard on the news, the Pennsylvania primary was moved from April 28th to June 2nd. Um, they did that to ensure 
that counties and uh, local officials would have adequate time to make sure that everything was in place and also to make sure by that time period that everyone would be able to be out and about uh, and feel more comfortable doing so. And that, again, is an exercise in, was done in a bipartisan manner. It was done with agreement from the governor. And you really did not see partisan politics going on. Uh, there was clear agreement and it went smoothly to both chambers. In addition to moving the primary, um, there were also um, some changes that were made as a result um, of the COVID virus. Um, to uh, facilitate changes in state agencies, to relax some requirements, and also to allow for funding. Included in this is changes to education in Senate Bill 751. This allows the Secretary of Education to order the closure of public schools, to waive the timelines to participate in the number of days uh, that were previously required, to waive performance data used in teacher evaluation systems because the students aren't in school, waive pre-K count hours, waive the 12-week student teacher requirement, and also to address the issue of compensation for teachers and make sure that they are being compensated. Um, school entities also must make a good faith effort to develop a plan to offer continuity of education using alternative means during the school closure. So there was quite a bit done uh, with respect to education. And again, that went through both chambers this week and is with the governor. In addition, there were some changes to unemployment compensation. Um, there were changes that were made that relieved employers of certain obligations. It changed the time frame uh, so that if an if a employer uh, files a request within 21 days before it was 15 days, they're relieved of certain charges. It also requires employers to notify employees of the availability of unemployment compensation and relieves employees of some of the job search and registration waiting periods. So it provided both relief to employers and employees. Also, one of the things that I wanted to note is typically with legislation, often you see the subject matter and you can easily recognize if it's relevant to your business or your practice. Um, this is more than ever a time to pay attention to all the amendments to bills. Clearly, the legislature did not know they were going to encounter this situation. They did not know that they were going to have to make some of these changes. Uh, to assist the departments or the citizens. So they had to look for legislation that was currently available that dealt with the same subject matter so that they could insert amendments that would get it on the fastest track to the governor. So it's very important that you read all the various amendments. Uh, one such example is that it, uh, they allowed an amendment to allow notaries to operate remotely. That was a business practice that was required. It was going to cause an issue for a variety of businesses, including insurance. So they found a vehicle that worked and put that into the legislation to allow that for the time period. You've also probably, you've also heard um, in the news that there's been funding that was provided uh, for medical supplies. Um, that uh, the governor just did a press release 
about that as well. Um, and that will allow a transfer of funds um, from the Secretary of the Budget and Revenue uh, to allow for uh, medical supplies and equipment. And Marie, I can I ask you a quick question too. Sure. So, was there a change in the tax filing requirements and the deadlines? Yes. Thank you. Um, so, in addition, there was a fiscal code bill that was moved that allowed for the transfer in the same legislation that allowed the budget secretary to transfer funds to be used for medical equipment and supplies. That amount of the transfer was up to $50 million. There were also provisions that changed the tax deadline to July 15th. Well, obviously, too, there's also going to be uh, timeframes at the local level for local earned income taxes. Within the provision, it permitted DCED to make the changes to match the state and federal requirements as well. So local timeframes will be adjusted to be uh, at the same time as the state and the federal as well. And that's House Bill 12. But th thank you for that. That was one of the questions that came in from one of our attendees. As a matter of fact, I just learned this morning or actually late yesterday afternoon that there's a change or a proposed amendment to one of the bills that would allow construction projects, residential and commercial, to proceed as long as the construction companies, the employers, uh, obey or adopt reasonable guidelines to keep social distancing and any other requirements and recommendations. So. It appears as if uh, things are moving very quickly to accommodate these issues. Um, you had also mentioned the change in the agenda um, and the change in the overall focus of the legislature. Could you talk about that for a bit, please? Sure. Um, last year's budget was uneventful in that there were adequate revenues. They were able to put money into the rainy day fund. And there was not a lot of controversy because there were adequate funds to fund the various projects and the budget was done on time. Um, and there really was not a lot of disagreement. Um, this year, there, there's going to be a shift. So they're not going to have the revenues. The economy is clearly there's been an impact on the economy. And there's going to be a shift in budgetary needs. You can already see where this is going by watching the various pieces of legislation that just went through this week. There's an increased attention to health care. Um, there's a, been a hiring freeze in the state. Um, so it's a quite a different picture than it was last year at this time. Um, and also, if you know, depending upon the timeline, it's going to be interesting to see how are those budget negotiations done uh, over technology as opposed to in-person face-to-face meetings. So you're going to see a shift in what's important. Um, but this also may be an opportunity for our, um, businesses or organizations that were trying to get the passage of legislation that saves money. So this is an opportune time if you have legislation that would either save taxpayer dollars or generate revenue. Um, so the picture has changed. The focus has changed. It's going to be how do we get adequate revenue? How do we save costs? And how do we make sure that we have these basic needs, health care? Uh, how do we have those things met? And also, um, I think over the next few weeks, you're going to see 
all of the legislation is going to be focused on the impact of COVID. Um, you're going to see the legislature look at things like um, how is this impacting the counties? How can we relieve local governments? How can we provide relief to our citizens? And that is going to be the focus. And many of the issues that were previously on the front burner are now going to be put on the back burner because this is as they're all of their time and attention. Uh, also, the state agencies um, have, you know, made changes. DCED, um, obviously, many of you have probably seen in the newspaper, there are the organization charged with reviewing the waivers as to whether or not they're a life-sustaining business. They also have a wealth of information about financial programs for small businesses. So I would encourage you, if you are a small business or represent a small business, that you go to DCED's website. Um, and they have very excellent tools that can walk you through what you might be eligible for. Um, and speaking of DCED, uh, it's also important to note that the Commonwealth Financing, Age, uh, Financing Authority, CFA, um, that administers economic stimulus dollars, um, took a step of transferring money uh, so that loans would be available to small businesses. So it was uh, over $60 million in loans. And you are feel free to contact us for additional information. Um, but there is a significant amount of money being put out there for small businesses who have been impacted by this crisis. In addition to the state agencies, uh, besides DCD, Department of State has changed some requirements for pharmacies. They allow supervision uh, over the computer as opposed to in person. They've encouraged the use of telemedicine, allowed individuals from out of state that are qualified to provide telemedicine to Pennsylvania citizens. And you just see a the need for healthcare and they're looking at providing sensible ways to relax some of the requirements. Also the Department of Insurance have put out a variety, have put out a few notices uh, so that temporarily electronic filings by companies can be done electronically. And they also provide guidance to insurers on how to operate during this time period. One thing I'd like to add on the waiver application, because I think that is an issue that's in the front of everybody's mind. If you are in one of those categories of businesses that is not deemed to be life-sustaining and you're looking for an exception, you can apply for these waivers online. Um, there is, and we, we have links uh, in the presentation materials, which we're happy to share with you uh, in electronic form so you can take the content that we're providing. But I'm seeing inconsistent results in some circumstances in the waiver application process, especially with respect to construction companies. Um, I have seen residential remodelers being denied waivers because they are told their um, response was that they are a life-sustaining business and they need not apply for a waiver. Well, if you look at the list of non-life-sustaining businesses or life-sustaining businesses, there's no exception there for commercial or residential construction. So there's some confusion. It may be in the application process and in the handling process, um, but we are seeing some companies that are getting waivers, some that are not. 
Um, and we haven't seen enough results on that uh, end to be able to determine whether there's a trend or if there's any tendencies by the Commonwealth to uh, accept or deny them. So uh, with that said, for, for the governor and for Anne-Marie, um, let's talk about the practical considerations. What, what do all these things mean for, for the businesses and for the owners out there who are trying to run a business in these, these uh, troubled times? Well, let, let me add, uh, and you can see on the screen, it says life-sustaining business and waivers. Um, yep. You know, me, and Amory, you correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't seen a really clear definition of what is life-sustaining. Um, it's not necessarily in the eye of the beholder, but I think a lot of people are trying to take a look at that. And in particular, when you say life-sustaining, if you're a business that is life-sustaining, the question is, do the people who supply you materials, are they considered life-sustaining? Uh, the problem with a declaration like something like this is you can't think of all contingencies when you're planning this, especially when you plan it and have to put it out in a very short period of time. I think we're on Thursday this week. It'll probably be the middle of next week before we get some real certainty from the administration after they've had a chance to consider all these different uh, requests and waivers. I think the last time I heard yesterday was 13 and a half thousand uh, requests for waivers to be able to continue to function. Um, getting clarification from the administration right now is very difficult uh, because the Department of Community and Economic Development, Department of Health, the two primary agencies are all very busy working and trying to get the waivers out to begin with. I think, you know, the challenge for business is, you know, how do we function? If you are closed, you're pretty much closed. If you are open in some areas, can we travel to other areas? For instance, you see there, employees should travel to other counties or to other states for work. Somebody living in Allegheny County right now uh, is under a stay-at-home, but uh, last I checked, Westmoreland County, right next door, uh, doesn't have a stay at home and would be able to continue uh, going across into Westmoreland County to go grocery shopping for one of a better description. Uh, so, you know, right now we're, we're really in a state of uncertainty at this point in time. The best thing I would say is if it's extremely uh, important, uh, either file a waiver, uh, consult with one of the members of the firm. Uh, to see you know, where you fit on this uh, greater scheme of things. And we will continue to, to monitor where the administration is on this. And finally, I think it will change somewhat once Pennsylvania is also declared a federal uh, disaster area. Can't tell you which way it's going to change, but that's going to have an impact, if for nothing else, that it will help fund the state uh, in dealing with the emergency side of this problem. Anne-Marie? Yeah, the only thing I would add is going to the issue of whether or not they're a life-sustaining business. The administration noted it did take some, it took guidance from the North American Industry Classification System, and there are um, there are frequently asked there is a frequently asked questions section um, on their website that does address some of the issues of whether or not to apply and um, how they came to the conclusion of what what was a life-sustaining business. Um, I agree, though, that they have been overwhelmed with applications, and uh, it's been difficult for them to get back to uh, individuals 
uh, with timely answers just from the sheer volume. They have, you know, put as much information as they could online, uh, but I know there is still uh, confusion out in the business community and a number of the business associations are calling for some blanket exemptions to make things easier for businesses because, uh, frankly, people are confused about whether or not uh, they're able to move forward, um, particularly when someone in their industry receives a waiver and they do not. They don't understand maybe the distinction. So I'd encourage you to look at the website, look at the frequently asked questions, and certainly, as Governor Corbett said, uh, you know, feel free to consult with us about those issues. And before we move on to a couple of questions that were presented to us uh, before the presentation started uh, by the audience, you know, I wanted to point out that lobbying apparently is making some difference, uh, an immediate difference in the landscape. Uh, you may know that last week, gun stores and firearm dealers received an exemption from um, you know the shutdown order. I'm just I know that's not probably the best term for it, but that, that's that's how I refer to it as the shutdown order. Um, and as I just mentioned, there was that proposed amendment for the construction industry. And I will tell you, as a, as a construction lawyer and a commercial lawyer, there's been a lot of pressure in Harrisburg to try and receive or provide exemptions for that industry. So that type, those type of efforts are working. Um, this, you know, there's no playbook for this. So whenever they move forward and they issue these executive orders, as the governor mentioned, uh, and they're trying to pass these laws, uh, there's no, you know, frequently asked questions or what did we do the last time we had something like this? This is brand new. So you, you have to rely on the process and the system to make sure your voice is heard. So uh, there are exemptions for your business and you can conduct things, conduct your trade safely. So there were a few questions that were proposed to us uh, and I'll throw it out to, uh, I believe this would be mo most appropriate for Anne-Marie and the governor, but Let's answer question number one. What programs are available for small businesses to obtain working capital? Anybody go ahead. Sure. Um, so as I previously mentioned, the Commonwealth Financing Authority, which is the independent agency of DCED that administers the economic stimulus money, uh, took the step in providing uh, relief to some of Pennsylvania's small businesses by authorizing the transfer of $40 million to the Pennsylvania Industrial Development Authority. Um, there was also other funding set aside for small businesses. So this was in addition to that. You can access that information by going on the DCED website. They do have uh, some user-friendly tools that you can see what you qualify for. Also, I would encourage you obviously to um, keep your eyes and ears open at the federal level for money that may be available. And lastly, also your local redevelopment authorities have noticed some of the counties are making funding available for businesses in their community that have been impacted by the coronavirus. In regard to the tax issue, um, as you know, the federal government and the state government have both postponed uh the reporting and the filing of taxes to the 15th of july i believe it is um i believe that the local community will be right behind them if they're not already there um and uh, other i think Amory covered the financial relief that's available i'm looking at the question what if businesses can't comply with regulations uh, good question 
um, for me, I would need to know what the regulation is. But uh, a lot of these regulations get adjusted during this period of um, the uh, hurricane, not the hurricane, the, the virus. Um, and what I would say to you is be patient. Um, we would need to know what the regulation is that you're talking about. The governor has the ability to adjust regulations under his broad powers. And if they, if there are certain regulations, like a DEP regulation, I think is, is a prime example, uh, we would need to, to know about that and, and let us know to uh, talk to them about, are they able to adjust it? I notice in some issues or that they have pointed out that they're going to continue or expect people to enforce uh, the regulations uh, at this point. But there, I can see instances where people may not be able to comply with the regulation because nobody's there to work. And that's because of the order of the governor. So as uh, Julian said earlier, that actually becomes a lobbying, uh, to a certain extent, a lobbying question uh, or system that we try to reach out to the various agencies and say, hey, this is a job. You need to give, you need to give some relief on this because nobody's there at work. Anne-Marie? Yeah, Governor, the only thing I would I would agree um, also that the various state agencies seem to be handling it a bit differently. Um, some have already taken the step of relaxing some of the requirements. I did notice um, from looking at DEP's website that they wanted to make sure that everyone knew they were still um, expected to meet all terms and conditions of their environmental permits. Um, however, they have relaxed the timeframes for um, DEP to get back to you about pending applications for permit decisions. So I would recommend again uh, that you would gather all the information as to why you cannot meet the regulation, hear the requirements, um, and that it would be best to have someone contact the agency and explain the specifics. I think that is a broad statement on their website to make sure everyone knows that they still need to be compliant. But obviously, no one planned for this to occur. So, uh, you know, some of your individual circumstances could not be planned. And perhaps you just can't, you can't meet them because of what occurred. And they need to know those specific facts. Okay, I'd like to get into um, one last issue that, or so these were three discrete issues under one heading for uh, Anne-Marie and for the governor. Before we turn this over to Bob Light to discuss the enforcement component and what you should do if the state police show up at your door. Um, could you talk about these three other considerations we talked about earlier? Hey, Marie, I, I already set you up for talking about price gouging, so go ahead. Sure. Um, yeah. So back in 2006, um, there was price gouging legislation that passed. Um, under those rules, they take a look at the time period uh, seven days before the emergency went into effect look at the price at that time, look at what it is now, and was, was there an increase in price that exceeded 20%. Um, there are exemptions uh, or situations that make it not applicable. Um, if your costs went up through no fault of your own, uh, you know, you're not gonna be held accountable for that. Um, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania has jurisdiction over price gouging. If, there is a, if you have a concern about price gouging, you can go right to their website. You can file a claim. They will investigate. They've received quite a few uh, complaints about this issue. And in addition, they submitted a letter 
um, to Amazon, Facebook, and number, a number of other organizations, asking them to be vigilant about price gouging and make sure that they're not promoting products uh, that are engaging in price gouging. And certainly, if you have more specific questions, we would be happy to answer those about price gouging. I just wanted to leave some time for the other presenters. And uh, on the commandeering private uh, property, that's probably one of the extremes within the governor's uh, powers under Title 35. And um, I could see the commandeering in a situation like this. We need to uh, get more beds. I could see the, the governor going in and commandeering, especially hotels like the William Penn here in Pittsburgh that just closed down, where they need to get enough rooms to uh, put hospital patients. Okay, that's just an example. Julian? All right. Um, thank you, Governor. That was wonderful. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Um, I'd like to turn this over to uh, Bob Light, our criminal defense lawyer. Uh, Bob, take it away. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bob Light, and I'll just spend a few moments discussing the criminal sanctions that can be imposed upon a business if it defies the orders of the governor, governor to shut down any of your operations. As you are aware, on March 19th, Governor Wolf issued an order that all businesses that are considered non-life sustaining must cease their physical operations. They're certainly entitled to continue to operate remotely but if you're non-life-sustaining, you must cease your physical operations. On the evening of March 19th, he published a list of by industry of what was and was not considered life-sustaining. Since that time, there has been some modifications to that list. A grocery stores, building materials, and general merchandise stores can stay open, but most other retail stores cannot. Beer distributors are operating but state-run liquor stores are not. Farmers and coal miners and loggers are at work, but nearly all construction is halted, although, as Julian mentioned, that may change soon. The list is evolving. For instance, after an initial decision to shut down laundromats, that was criticized by people who didn't have washing machines. So these businesses were moved to life-sustaining. Since the order took effect Monday morning, State police have been tracking how many business owners they've confronted about appropriately continuing their operations. In the first two days, they've issued 44 warnings throughout the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The highest number, nine, came from Troop A, which covers Somerset, Indiana, Westmoreland, and Cambria counties. Uh, municipal police and local police officials, uh, the state health and agricultural department and the Liquor Control Board agents all have authority to enforce closures as well. So it's likely that the state police warnings are not the only ones that have been issued. And it's fair to assume that there have been more than 44 verbal warnings as of last evening. This enforcement power is primarily derived by two statutes, a portion of the Administrative Code of 1929 and part of the 1955 Disease Prevention and Control Law. The administrative code says violators must go in front of a justice of a peace, alderman, or magistrate of the county and could be fined between $10 and $50 in costs. You've got to remember this was a 1929 statute. So 
1929, $50 may have been quite a penalty, but it is not now. It also says violators shall, upon conviction, be giving a fine of between $25 and $300 together with costs. And if payment isn't made, they can be imprisoned in a county jail for up to 30 days. Uh, again, these fines laid out in the decades-old statute are merely a baseline and, with, and could rise with court costs. Uh, however, I would also anticipate that the Pennsylvania Crimes Code would be used for repeat offenders. Obstruction of the administration of law is a misdemeanor of the second degree, which carries a penalty of up to two years in prison and a $5,000 fine. In addition, there are other criminal laws that might be applicable. Additionally, uh, the Pennsylvania State Police or District Attorney's Office could obtain court orders to shut down the businesses, and that would cause problems with the business licensing issues in the future. At present, the business closures are the only uh, coronavirus excuse me, related order that carry enforcement mechanisms. At this time, stay-at-home orders don't te technically carry penalties, but that could change. Again, there are a link, there is a, a very good link on this page, on this uh, slide, that show what the Pennsylvania Police Enforcement Guidelines are. And there's also a link to the Pennsylvania Department of Health uh, as to updating what they are doing on a daily basis. Uh, bottom line, if you get questioned by any state police or any law enforcement agency, about the business that you have ongoing, cooperate with them. Uh, operate in good faith. Don't get into an argument with them about the status of your business. Contact us, we'll be available. We can all sort this out in the future. Thanks. Hey, Bob, I have a question for you. When the state police or any other law enforcement agency comes to enforce any of these provisions and they're giving a verbal warning. Can you give us a little bit of context? What, what all is involved in that? And does that mean that they should expect if they continue their operations as is without modification, that they may be subject to a fine or a penalty or any of those other um, adverse uh, impacts that you were just talking about? Absolutely. The, the state police has issued an order or guidelines to uh, the citizens of Pennsylvania to report any businesses that they see operating that are not life-sustaining. Uh, the Pennsylvania State Police and local law enforcement will follow up on these calls. Uh, you should call your uh, non-emergency number of your police department if you want to report any businesses. What will happen is an officer will come to your business and you will, he, you will make a determination whether you are life-sustaining business or not. If he makes that determination on the first occasion, he'll give you a verbal warning. The state police is tracking everyone who has obtained a verbal warning. And it's only a custom to expect them to come back the next day to see if you're still in operation. At that time, they will issue a citation to you. Uh, you will be given a date that you'll have to appear at the magistrate's office in your jurisdiction uh, to answer these charges and a hearing will be held. Just because there's a order in place doesn't mean as citizens we give up our due process rights. Uh, you will still be entitled to a hearing. At the magistrate's office, there will be a hearing and uh, you'll be able to 
uh, answering charges at that time. From, from there, you could, if you lose, you could appeal, uh, file what's known as a statutory appeal to the Court of Common Pleas. But again, we're looking at this is non-emergency and it's gonna take many months before these hearings to occur. The easiest thing is if you believe you are a life-sustaining business and you issued a citation, uh, contact Amory and file a waiver. Yep. And that, one of the questions I, you may have just answered it, but you know, for the audience out there, uh, you may or may not be aware, but the Pennsylvania Supreme Court issued a emergency declaration at or about the time that Governor Wolf uh, issued his, which essentially um, shut down the entire court system in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, with the exception of emergency proceedings, PFA hearings for domestic violence, and certain criminal matters. So I, as a you know, I was supposed to have a jury trial three weeks ago, and it was canceled. Uh, and there, there's no date for it to be rescheduled. Everything is on hold right now. So Bob, if you get that citation or you have some type of law enforcement action that you have to respond to, uh, is there anything you can do right now to try and fight it other than the waiver, or are you waiting until the entire court system opens back up again? To the best of my knowledge, Jordan, there's no way to fight it now since, as you said, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania has issued a shutdown order for all Pennsylvania courts, except in, uh, non, except in emergency matters, and certainly, uh, a citation would not be considered an emergency. Okay. Bob, thank you so much. Um, for those in the audience, Bob had referenced some statutes and some other resources that'll be on the materials if you'd like to look those up uh, when we pass them out. Uh, there's also updates on there from the state police uh, that may be interesting to you so you can stay current. Um, and with that, I would like to pass uh, the mic over to Joseph Schaefer, uh, who will talk briefly about force majeure clauses in contracts. Joseph, go ahead. Thank you, Julian. So um, force majeure clauses are probably something that most of you haven't thought about um, since you signed the agreement, if you, you thought of it then. Um, for years, we've been lucky enough that um, these clauses have been mostly boilerplate, but these are the situations where they become very important and, and they can become important for any number of reasons because your business is required to shut down by a government order because um, you have experienced some sort of adverse event in your business, either a an employee has become ill and you need to shut down operations temporarily, or even because perhaps one of your suppliers has experienced an interruption and that is preventing you from continuing operations. So those are some of the scenarios um, in a case like this involving a virus where a force majeure clause can come into play. And what a force majeure means is simply superior force. Um, they picked a fancy French name for it, but that's what it is. And it's generally considered to be an unforeseeable event that prevents a party from completing their performance um, as the contract requires. And this is a negotiated contract clause. You might hear about it as something that um, the courts come up with, um, also called a common law doctrine, but it is a negotiated contract clause, even though sometimes these common law doctrines are, are also referred to as force majeure. 
And what that means is that the parties get to determine what's covered. So typically you will see these force majeure clauses as calling, as, excuse me, as covering the so-called acts of God, like earthquakes or extreme weather events, hurricanes, floods, um, like the governor uh, mentioned occurred in Pennsylvania um, during his term or his tenure. But these force majeure clauses can also cover man-made events, such as labor strikes, war, terrorism, or orders from civil or military authorities. And they often include catch-all provisions that simply refer to any unforeseen um, events that prevent performance and for which no party um, was at fault or for which no party was responsible. Now, the key thing in interpreting any of these clauses is looking at what the parties actually wrote, because these are contract clauses. And so first off, courts will not supply them. If you don't have one in your contract, a, a, party, um, a court will not read one in for you, um, although you do have some other remedies, as Julian will talk about here in a bit. But the other thing that's important about these being contract clauses is that they are enforced unless they are ambiguous. And so that means that you get what you bargained for, for better or worse. So if you don't have a um, provision in your force majeure clause that would cover a virus or a pandemic event or, or something similar, or if you can't make the argument that your catch-all provision um, was designed to capture events of that nature, then you might not be covered by a force majeure clause or um, the party that you're contracting with won't be covered by it and can't invoke it to delay their performance. So um, what does that um, mean for us? Um, if you have a force majeure clause, it will probably allow you to suspend performance um, and it may permit termination. So we've looked at um, a number of these and generally speaking, um, they will allow for a party to suspend their performance. And um, if performance is suspended for a certain period of time, say 30, 60, 90 days, whatever the parties negotiate, then they may terminate without penalty. It's not a get out of jail free card for however, and it has to be, um, the performance issue has to be caused by the force majeure event itself. So it's not enough for one party to say that um, the COVID-19 issue is, is present and is making um, performance difficult. It truly must make um, the performance impossible. Um, one of the other things that's important to know about these is that most clauses and most courts will require the events to be unforeseeable and outside the party's control. And I think here we can all agree that the um, COVID-19 pandemic is outside of our control. But one of the things that I expect that we're going to see come up is the extent to which it was unforeseeable because of um, past events involving SARS and other um, pandemics, even if those did not reach the United States quite like this one. Um, the last thing I want to discuss is um, notice. And that's because um, these force majeure clauses can be waived. So it's important to look at your contract and to see if there is a um, part of the force majeure clause itself or a separate notice provision that requires you to let the other party know if you are going to experience an impact and will need to suspend performance. Um, you want to give that timely 
so that you don't have an argument that you are um, waiving the force majeure provision, but you don't want to give it too early either, because if it turns out later on down the road that you are in fact able to perform and um, the other contracting party has um, found another thing um, carefully when you're making the decision on whether to invoke the force majeure clause. So the sum and substance of this is that it's important to look at your contract, and that's something that we're happy to work with you on, um, and find out exactly what it covers, if it will cover this type of event, and then how you invoke it, and how long it will allow you to suspend performance for, and whether it will in fact allow you to terminate. One of the other things that's important for um, you to look at um, generally with your attorney is how costs will be allocated. So if there are increased costs as a result of performance, if each party bears those, or if there is a mechanism in the contract to shift those, um, or impose those as a contract cost, as there often are in construction contracts. So those are some of the things that um, you will be considering and seeing, and I think we're going to see in um, in contract cases as they come up. Um, and with that, Julian, I'm going to turn it over to you for a discussion of some of the common law doctrines. Sure, thanks, Joseph. Um, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, things like force majeure clauses are often boilerplate. We always warn people to not just go through boilerplate language of contracts, sign off on them and not think about them. Um, I have seen force majeure clauses that go run from soccer riots in Africa that prevented labor forces from mobilizing um, to um, you know earthquakes to you you name it uh, things that you claim to be not foreseen. Now Joseph raised a very interesting point about prior knowledge with issues like SARS uh, and some of the other illnesses that were that ran rampant over the past 10 or 15 years. Well, if you were, did a contract in the past two or three weeks, for, for example, and this COVID-19 issue was on the news and it was common knowledge, there could be questions as to whether or not it's a foreseeable condition. So it's going to be very interesting to see how some of these things play out in the court system whenever they're a stress test or under a stress test. Uh, I'll be very brief on the last two issues on the possibility of performance and uh, with insurance because I'd like to keep us to an hour. But, you know, it, in conjunction with uh, force majeure clauses, there is two other doctrines, and I hate to say doctrines because it sounds very academic, but they're basically excuses or defenses you may have if you're in a contract dispute with somebody over performance under these circumstances considering the shutdown. Um, you know, everything is off everything is a little bit more difficult right now for example you know the audio that we have in this presentation is not probably as good as we we normally would want because we're all in different locations as opposed to in the conference room from our office in one oxford center and those are just things we have to overcome uh, i know from my construction clients they're trying to perform under contracts to the best of their abilities up to the point where they're told that they can't do it at all so they're just frozen in place. But you need to be aware of a couple things, uh, uh, legal terms. One, impossibility of performance and frustration of purpose. 
they're both kind of related, but they're somewhat different. They're entirely state law driven. Uh, under Pennsylvania law, impossibility of performance actually is a legitimate defense that you can raise to a contract. It means that even though um, I agreed to perform XYZ under a contract because of circumstances entirely out of my control and I have no fault, it's impossible for me to perform. Um, let's say, for example, you were trying to build uh, something on a piece of land near a river and that piece of land collapses and goes into the river. It's impossible to perform then, therefore your performance is excused, you're out of the contract. Frustration of purpose is a little bit different. What that means is that there's interferences in the uh, ability to perform and the viability and the feasibility of your performance. So it's frustrated and you may be excused from, from uh, holding up your end of the bargain. Under Pennsylvania law, this is actually a Third Circuit Court of Appeals case applying Pennsylvania law. Actually, a quarantine, I found a case with a quarantine, is considered to be frustration of purpose and can excuse performance. It's all fact-based, it's all state law-based, and you have to analyze the things in great detail to excuse performance. I will tell you, if any of you are doing any work in New York, uh, impossibility of performance is almost, uh, hate to say it, impossible to get. Uh, last slide, I'll be very brief on this, is insurance. Um, business interruption insurance may not apply. I do a significant amount of insurance coverage work. Uh, I will tell you there's real questions right now as to whether or not uh, this pandemic would constitute an interruption under the typical definitions of insurance policies that would trigger your insurance policy. Typically, you need property damage or bodily injury. Um, Joseph Schaefer and I had a discussion yesterday that uh, having a virus on your property or on your let's say workstations that interferes with your ability to do business may constitute property damage uh it may not uh, but those are the things we'll be monitoring and i'm sure the courts will be dealing with once they open back up again but in pennsylvania there's a late notice defense meaning that if you wait to file a claim and the insurance company can show that it is prejudiced uh, which is a pretty high burden actually, uh, then you may have waived coverage. So when in doubt, and this accounts for anybody and everything on any claim, file it with your insurance carrier. Look at your policy, send a letter to the address they tell you to send it to in the policy and send it to your broker. Um, and then worst case is that you learn from your mistakes. Um, it's not really mistakes, but learn from your circumstances uh, to in the future, broaden your force majeure clauses, broaden your uh, contractual defenses by the language in, the in your contracts, and maybe think about negotiating exceptions or exclusions in your insurance policy. Um, if you have so, any if I questions- just jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Just, just jump in. I think your point about making sure that you provide notice and, and that you submit a claim is is a great one, but I do want to, um, remind our folks that it is very important about how we phrase those because you don't want to phrase the um, the claim in a way that would um, result in a denial of coverage. And so it would be, I think, a good practice to reach out and, and talk to your attorney ahead of time to find out, to make sure that you're phrasing um, your claim correctly. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and, and if you have to do it um, in uh, emergency circumstances, just make it as broad as possible. Um, and then that can be followed up with uh, correspondence from your lawyers um, and, and a detailed discussion on the facts. But point well taken, Joseph. Be, yeah, be as detailed as you can, but make sure that you're following your policy language. Um, with that said, we are rated an hour, a little bit over. Um, if you have any questions, you can submit them in the chat function. I don't believe that we have any that are pending. And um, what I'd like to do is also offer to you guys uh, some details on, you notice that we didn't talk about employment, we didn't talk about bankruptcy, and we didn't talk about litigation. Uh, there's a reason for that. It's too much to cover at one time. We wanted to keep this to an hour and focus on Pennsylvania. Uh, but our firm has been doing a series of presentations that may apply um, and may be interesting to you, uh, depending on where you are and what your business is. Uh, so I would uh, encourage you to go, take a look at some of the other presentations we're doing and participate if you'd like. Um, I don't believe we have any questions, but if you guys have any that you would like to submit to us and we will answer them offline, we're happy to do that and we will provide you with our seminar materials. Um, to the panel, thank you very much for participating and for your expertise, and thank you to everybody who is online um, and is uh, our, our attendees for the day. Thank you so much.